Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to everybody who's joining us on site and online, and uh, welcome to Zach. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And I want to echo what Andrew said a moment ago. Zach, thank you for your leadership in coordinating the, uh, the banquet last night. And, and many, many, you guys have no idea how much else Zach does around this place at Christmas time. Uh, it is, an, um, yes, let's do that. A huge number of hours he puts in. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, this feels a bit different, uh, probably for everybody, because you're thinking, why is Zach up here? If you're mm-hmm. not familiar with Pastor 411, and we're even a bit you know, different for us because we typically don't do Pastor 411 this time of year. Yeah, that's right. This is sort of a springtime thing, but this is a Christmas edition of Pastor 411. I think it's going to be really good. This is where, if you're new with us, you're not sure what I mean by Pastor 411. This is where we answer your questions about life and faith in God in attempt to address anything that can help you experience and live out that new life with Christ a little bit better. Yeah, so just like when you have questions, you could dial 411 or you could go to 411.ca to get more information. Yeah. So similarly here at the church, if you have questions about God or faith or Jesus, we do Pastor 411. Absolutely. Usually it's in the spring, uh, and we receive lots and lots of questions at that time of year from people who are on-site and our online uh, congregation as well. And we try to answer as many as possible. We never get through them all. We try to answer as many as possible. And if you want to go back through the history of the Pastor 411, they're on our website, westmeadows.org. They're on there. And we talked about, we dedicated like a whole season to discussions on heaven and hell. We uh, talked about what does it mean to have a calling? Uh, can a person lose their salvation? Uh, what happens to Old Testament saints when they died before, before Jesus? Uh, Bible translations, what are they, how do we understand them, uh, end times, prophecy, we've talked about some of those sorts of things. Yep. Yeah, we've even talked about our hair care routines yes, in the mornings. Up. Yeah, right? question about how we do our hair. Yeah, that's right, if we ever yeah. skip leg day, which apparently... You never skip leg day, because remember, if you skip day, leg day, you look like a chicken. This is true. That's this right. is true, you look like Pastor Andrew. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, we also talked about if Pastor Mark works out, we call it CrossFit. Yeah, that was asked. Yeah, when I go to the gym, is that called CrossFit? Yeah. So no, I knew that one would fall no, flat not. every no, time. No, it's not. I do proper pull-ups, not CrossFit pull-ups. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But over the last number of weeks, uh, I've received a lot of questions about Christmas. And so we thought, you know what, you know, questions about the Christmas story, about Christmas traditions, we thought, what better way to address those questions than to do a Christmas edition of Pastor 411. So this week, we're going to be unwrapping some of the mysteries around the events and the theology of Christmas, and then next week, we're going to unwrap some of the traditions, some of the myths around the traditions and the celebrations that we participate in at Christmas time as well. Uh, we've got a lot of questions prepped for, for this week and for next week, uh, but you can still participate. In fact, there's two ways that you can participate with us today and for next week. If you have questions about Christmas traditions around this time of year, you can email them to Pastor 4 on 1, and we'll try to address them next week. But if you have questions right now or during the service, um, or perhaps follow-up questions to questions that yep. we have already planned for this morning's service, you can um, scan that Pew Portal if you're joining us here in person, and there's a button on there you can use to submit questions. We've got a laptop. Yeah, we, we get can, them live up here. Uh, answer those questions. And if you're joining us online, just type them in the chat, and we'll see your questions here as well. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll respond to what we can. If, if there are big questions we can't get to during the service here, I'll make sure we follow up with those during the week as well. So we'll get into them. Thanks for helping to set that up as well, Zach. It makes this more of an interactive experience that we're kind of shooting for as we answer your questions about Christmas. Perfect. So let's get into our first question as we unwrap some of the mysteries around the biblical story of Christmas. So uh, last week we talked a lot about prophecy. Yeah. Right. And so this week uh, we want to address what was the first prophecy about Jesus's birth? 
very first prophecy. Good question. Uh, so as I mentioned last week, if you're with us, there was a ton of prophecy that was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. In the life of Jesus, over 350 prophecies were fulfilled through the life of Jesus, but lots in the birth as well. And the Jewish people were very, very familiar with these, and that's why they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And I mentioned that they were waiting all the way back from the time of Genesis, so really from the very beginning. And that's where we find the first and the most, arguably the most important prophecy, prophetic word, about the birth of Jesus, about, about who Jesus would be. And it actually shows up really early in Genesis chapter 3. And this takes place right after um, Adam and Eve have sinned, and God has confronted them. And if you're familiar with that passage in Genesis 3, God comes to confront them. And because they have sinned, he, he speaks about the consequences or the curses that will now exist in their lives and in the world. He talks to Eve about how uh, childbirth will be difficult. He talks to Adam about how the ground will be cursed and he'll, have to, he'll work harder to, to produce the ground. And, and he turns, God then turns to the serpent, to, to, to Satan, who kind of plotted and was at the center of this whole fallen reality that now existed in the world. And, and when he turns to Satan, we see this in Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, he says to him, he says, I will put enmity, that means hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, meaning kind of him and his minions kind of thing. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So Genesis 3.15. This is what's referred to as the proto-evangelium. So there's your first million-dollar word for the day. There'll be three of them before we're done. Your first million-dollar word for the day, proto-evangelium, which basically means the first gospel. The first time the gospel is presented in the Bible, the first time we hear the good news that includes a response to the bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is, is that because of Adam and Eve's actions, that sin has now entered the world, and that has caused a curse upon all humanity. And because of that curse, there's this hostility that this verse speaks about. This hostility between people and between Satan, that hostility continues as Satan tries to keep people from experiencing the fullness of new life with God. That's the bad news. But the good news spoken of here is that God would send a Savior who would enter into that conflict and ultimately would defeat Satan and his minions, his offspring. And Jesus was the offspring of the woman. Jesus was the one born of the woman that would be that Savior, that Messiah. Now, Satan would try to hinder his efforts on our behalf by striking his heel, it says, by, by hindering him, by doing damage to him. And we look at this in the life of Jesus where, where we see that there is the temptation in the wilderness. We see that there's the Pharisees who are against him. Judas betrayed him. His friends left him. He was defamed. He was ultimately crucified. So all of these things happen to strike a blow, to strike his heel, if you will. But those wounds, while they were damaging, they were not fatal nor were they the final act, because as this verse foretold, and as we know through the story of Jesus and the Gospels, Jesus ultimately would crush the head of Satan when he rose from the grave on the third day, paying the price for the sin of all people who believe in him, therefore destroying Satan's power, destroying his empire, removing all authority he has, and ultimately sentencing him to, to hell. So this is what's referred to as the proto-evangelium, sort of the first prophetic word spoken about Jesus um, in the, the moment. And, and it, it's spoken like the moment sin enters into the world, we see that immediately God has a plan for salvation for us. And that's, God, that's God's good news for us, the good news to our bad news that is first revealed in the Son born of Mary, Jesus Christ.
Perfect. That's a great first question. Kind of kick us off, Pastor Four and One here. Um, we want to follow up on a, that question about kind of Jesus's um, parents yes, in a second, okay. but sure. uh, let's just get to some quick online questions because we've yep. got a few come in okay. and they're softballs. Okay. All right. Good. So good. what's are they about the gym? They're not about the gym. Okay. No. Nor are they about <laughs> Pastor Andrew's chicken legs. And I forgot to bring my glasses, so you're gonna have to help me out here. All right. I <laughs> <laughs> gotta pick on you, man. That's how it goes. Yeah. All right. First question, very difficult. What is one plus one? One plus one. Uh, this is like a skill testing question it before is. you know if your answer is going to go through. Uh, one plus one is two. But Good. the follow-up question is, what is two? Oh, man. Yeah. Such a philosopher. <laughs> All right. The second question, maybe a little bit more theological. I don't okay. know. Uh, did Jesus have any prophecy about the Edmonton Oilers? Oh, yes. He said, he said, in this world you will have trouble. in this world you will have trouble but take heart for I have overcome the world he said yeah that's the first one that comes to mind (laughs) (laughs) all right we'll take it we'll take it okay all right so we can take from this that at least the system works you can send in your questions and uh, we'll try to answer them yeah okay okay let's get to our second real question now okay um and that is how can Jesus be from the line of David Mm -hmm. okay because uh it says in the Bible that Mary wasn't right and Joseph was not his biological father, so how could that be? Right. Oh, good question. This is actually a really insightful question, because last week we also talked about, when we talked about prophecy, and a lot of these tend to be follow-up questions to what we covered last week, but, but one of the prophecies was that the Messiah would be from the line of David, that he would sit on the throne of David, and that he would kind of have a king that would never end. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read about the Messiah from the line of David, on his throne, kingdom that never ends. And so as this question highlights, though, there's a problem. Because Jesus, while his mom was Mary, she was from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. Different one. And now Joseph was a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, so, so that works. But Joseph wasn't his biological father. And we're, we're taught that the Holy Spirit was Jesus' father, if you will. And so is it accurate to say that Jesus is in the line of David? So it's a very, it's a very insightful question. Uh, first of all, Matthew is pretty confident that Jesus is, because when Matthew even just begins his gospel account of Jesus' life, the very, very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is an introduction to a genealogy, those, those parts that we always like to skip over, right? The long list of begats, you know, this guy begat, this guy begat, this guy. But, but Matthew starts his with this word when he says this. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, throughout the genealogy, if you read the next 14 verses, you'll see that there's this common pattern followed where, where the father of is the pattern. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Joseph. And it just kind of continues until verse 16 where we see that Jacob was the father of Joseph. So that's the pattern that follows. And it is problematic because Joseph was not the father of Jesus. And so the line is broken. Now, we see from that genealogy that, that all people of, of the Jewish nation are descendants of Abraham, so we're good on that one. Mary provided that connection by being his mother. But it gets disconnected with Joseph because Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. But, but Matthew actually signals that at the end of his genealogy. So genealogies actually have some, some, some important stuff in them. He, he breaks that pattern of was the father of when he gets to verse 16. And we read this where it says, So Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary the mother of Jesus who's called the Messiah. So Matthew switches here 
by using the, the father of pattern to acknowledging that Joseph wasn't the father of, but Joseph was the husband of, of Mary. Husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So this signals that he was not the biological father, but it does give an indication that he was the legal adopted father of Jesus. Now, an adoption in our world carries some significance, but even more so significance back in the time of Jesus. If, when you read through the Gospels, you'll see that the people of Nazareth gave no distinction uh, between Jesus and his brothers and sisters. Any time that it's mentioned, his brothers and sisters, it, it's just in one thought, one breath. There's no, yeah, but he's adopted kind of sense. And it, it, was, it was very much legally binding and so legally binding that Jesus would have been considered the, the, um, the heir, the firstborn heir in Joseph's family, even though he was adopted. Luke has a genealogy as well, tracing the lineage of Mary. And, and Luke actually uses language that further describes us in a better detail. And we read in Luke chapter, th- chapter 3 of Luke is where you find that genealogy. But in verse 23, it says, Jesus was, and then in the International Standard Version, they've translated this phrase, Jesus was legally calculated to be the son of Joseph, is the way that it's, it's listed there. He was legally calculated to be the son of Joseph. And in that culture, that, that adoption established him as the legal heir to, uh, to the... Um, as, as the firstborn legal heir of Joseph. Therefore, uh, Jesus could be considered the firstborn to have the rights of all the firstborn, the privileges of the firstborn, including being considered in the line of David because of that, and therefore the beneficiary of the covenant promises that existed in that too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. A bit of a cultural thing that's in there. Yeah. That we pick up in the language of the text. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to come back more so to the parentage of, of Jesus. Later on, yeah, right. we'll come back to that bit. So, but for now, we can understand that the legal Jesus was the legal descendant of David, yep. and then that therefore fulfilled the prophecy. Yeah. Right? Okay, mm-hmm. awesome. So, uh, we also received a lot of questions coming, and we're going to move on to another one here about uh, the wise men. Yeah, so, that was probably most of the questions were about the wise men. So interesting. we're going to camp on that for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, good. So, we'll start with just a basic understanding. Who were the wise men? Yes. Or the magi, magi, or the kings? The kings, yep. Yeah. All kinds of names here floating around. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so we're probably familiar with, with this idea of the magi, the kings, the, the wise men. In the story, you find that in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, is where we find that part of the story. And what we actually read, though, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, is that it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the magos is the word used there. The magos came from the east. From the, magos from the east came to Jesus to find the one born king of the Jews. Now, this word is translated different ways in the Greek. The Greek word magos is translated a few different ways. It's, it's translated as wise men. It's translated as magi. It's never translated kings, though. That, that simply comes from the song. Um, that, that comes from the song, We Three Kings. And there is, there's a, uh, a bit of a vague verse in Psalms in, in the Psalms that speaks of it a little bit. But, but that word is never used in terms of king. So that one uh, is not really supported. And there's no evidence that they're rulers mm. of any kind. So we can call them the three kings, but they, you know, they, weren't. <laughs> they weren't rulers of anything. Uh, the word wise men is uh, is an acceptable term. It's been used by actually most translations use wise men, uh, starting with the King James Version. They kind of started with that, and it, and it just kind of carried on and kept with a lot of translations. And when you see wise men, it's kind of referring to their reputation and character, more so than describing who they were. Because describing who they were more accurately are the versions that use the word magi. 
because uh, magi would have, be, would have been considered these uh, religious figures, um, uh, people of science in, in that time and age, and actually for, for centuries, um, science was really kept in the, in the world of, of the church. Um, seminaries and whatnot, and universities were actually started by the church. So, like the world of science existed in the church back in, in the early centuries. And so even in other cultures, the people who knew about astrology and about the world were priests. And so the word magi refers probably more specifically to these priests or astrologers uh, from the East who are most likely of uh, maybe a religion you haven't heard of called Zoroastrianism. Anyone heard of Zoroastrianism before? A few people have. Uh, so Zoroastrianism uh, is the world's oldest religion, uh, and at the time of Jesus' birth, it would have been the major religion um, of the Persian world. Hmm. Uh, and it still exists up to today. It's, it's one of the top ten religions even today. It only has about a quarter million followers, but it's, it's, um, it's one of the top religions today as well. And, and Zoroastrian priests of the time were very, very well known and respected, like throughout the known world, respected for their uh, focus upon astrology. Was, was one of their big, their big emphasis that they had. Now, we also can think this is the proper definition because that word magos is used a few other times uh, by Luke uh, in the book of Acts. But it's used when he's referring to, like, Simon the sorcerer and people like that. He'll use the word magos in those situations as well. And so the, the word is kind of in keeping, the, the, the definition of it, but also the other applications of it are in keeping with the understanding of these being Zoroastrian priests from uh, probably from Persia who... Uh, who came to visit Jesus. Yeah. So then the question is, why would a Persian priest be looking for the king of Israel, the birth of the king of Israel, um, in Israel, pardon me, and how do they even know to watch? They're yeah. like way on the other well, side. That's a good question. Like, right. why would they even know? You don't want to be watching or waiting, waiting for this. But that's actually, answering that question is actually another reason to believe that that's who they were, that they were from Persia. Because Persia is sort of the modern-day area of Iran, but back in Israel's history, Persia was also the region of Babylon. Now, if you follow the history of, of the nation of Israel back a few hundred years, you remember that Israel was carried off to Babylon in exile. And one of the major prophets who was eventually elevated to be the chief seer in the region of Babylon was Daniel. Dan, remember the story of Daniel? We had a sermon series a little while ago. Daniel was the chief seer, one of the chief wise men one of the chief, kind of in the priesthood of the, of the nation of Babylon a few hundred years earlier. And so there's good reason to believe that they would have been familiar with Daniel, familiar with his writings, and some of his writings actually included a prophecy of the Messiah and a timeline. We won't fully unpack this today, but for example, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we read this. Uh, it says, for the, from the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, so there's the connection of, of these priests who have been familiar with this, looking towards Israel, towards Jerusalem. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, king, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that, that's a timeline. We want to pack what that means. It basically, it's a timeline. But we see in this one verse alone, and Daniel wrote so much more than this, but in this one verse alone that these, um, that these Persian priests would have been aware of is a prophecy of a messiah of a ruler, of a king, being born into the land of Jerusalem. And what did they say? The first thing they did was they went to King Herod in Jerusalem asking, where is the one born the 
king of the Jews, which kind of lines up with, with this prophecy that Daniel would have had. So uh, this verse is a little bit cryptic, but you can kind of see here that there's a timeline included here for the anointed one, for the Messiah, for the, for the king of Jews to be born in the land and in the, um, um, in, in the uh, type of work and ministry and service that these guys would have done, which explains how they probably would have known about the prophecy and why they'd be willing to make a thousand kilometer journey to, to go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so then that leads us to some more questions about the wise men. Yeah. Um, what about the gifts that they brought and the star that they followed? Yes, two um, big so, parts of the story. Yeah, so let's start with the star. So what okay. is the star of Bethlehem? Right. So that's yeah, big part of the story in Matthew's account of this. Remember, how did they, how did they know it was time to go? How did they know where to go? Mm-hmm. Uh, we read in the text, Matthew chapter 2, that they followed the star. Some interesting details about the star, though, before we talk about what it is, that helps us determine what it possibly could be. The first thing is this. When we read the text, there's no evidence anybody else but them could see the star. Like, like nobody else is watching the star. When they show up and talk to Herod, and Herod talked to his priests, none of them are looking at the sky. None of them are aware of the star. They're aware of the prophecy, but they're not aware of the star. It seems like the only people who, who know about the star are, are the magi. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the star appears to have this ability to move. Because it even says in some of the verses um, that it went on ahead of them. And it talks about how it, it stopped over the place where the child was. And, and even though stars kind of move in the sky, to, to follow the journey they went, the star would have had to move south at some point. And, and things kind of move east to west in the sky. They don't tend to move north and south <laughs> in the sky. Uh, the third problem is the length of visibility. How long they could see this in order to follow it. Because remember, the wise men, the magi, didn't show up on the night Jesus was born. Like, they didn't go visit him in this, you know, the stable or the cave in the manger. Uh, consider even just the reality of this part of the story. That they had a thousand kilometer journey to take. So the star had to appear to them to prompt them to start planning for the journey. Then they had to plan. Then they had to travel a thousand kilometers. Then they had to search for him and get directions once they got to Jerusalem and then go find him. And so, and we get indications that this definitely was not taking place, that the timeline was not possible for this to happen um, on the night that Jesus was born. And for example, in verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 2, it reads, that, it reads this. It says, the star went ahead of them. So they're following the star. The star went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. What was the place? On coming to the house. It says, not the manger, Mm. not the cave, not the stable. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. You see, up to a period of like two years, we don't know how long. It could have been a couple weeks, a couple months. It could have been up to two years Mm -hmm. um, from the time that Jesus was born until they arrived. And so obvious at that time, Joseph didn't make his home in a stable. He was like, Mary, I guess this is where we're staying. (laughs) Make the best of that manger. No, he, he moved his family to a house. And they, they dwelt in a house when, when, the, when the Magi, the wise men, came to found them. So a lot of time had passed. Um, so anyways, so those are a few things about the star. Who was able to see it? Limited visibility of who could see it, its ability to move, and the duration of how long it lasted for. So this has baffled scholars for a long time, and there's different theories that emerged. And, and you can find these, easily find these online. Scholars, who, they'll say, well, there was uh, you know, some of the earlier sightings of Halley's Comet actually go back to around that time. Uh, maybe a supernova took place. Um, there's a few theories, popular theories, about the conjunction of planets, different planet conjunctions that when they come together would form very bright stars. Mm-hmm. So these are some of, the, some of the natural phenomenon that people point to to talk about this star. Uh, the problem, though, is that there aren't any records of supernovas or comets 
or these you know, celestial alignments taking place at the right dates. There's some within a decade on either side of Jesus' birth, but none that happen you know, close enough to the dates. Uh, and in addition to that, they just don't fit the description of the experience that's shared in, the, um, in, in Mark's account, or uh, Matthew's account of the story. So none of these fully explain the limited audience, none of them explain the ability to move, none of them explain the, the visibility for so long. So there's one other option that comes up that I, uh, that I personally think is the most likely scenario. Um, and it is that this was not a natural star, that this was a supernatural light that God had placed in, in the sky or, or in the visibility, anyway, in the appeared for the Magi to follow. And this would not be the first time that God did this. We see actually a number of times throughout Scripture this takes place. Certain times in the history where God has revealed himself to guide his people. Think, for example, back to Israel wandering in the wilderness. We read in Exodus 13, 21. It says, by day the Lord went ahead of them. There's similar language. Went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them. And at night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So different uh, manifestation, but similar language and similar principle here. God's presence to guide towards a purpose. This is what's referred to. Here's your second million dollar word for the day. This is what's referred to sometimes as the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God. Uh, his, his visible presence in, in our lives. His visible presence in the world in, in that fashion. And if you want to find other examples in scripture where we see the Shekinah glory of God, you can um, look at our Beyond the Message questions this week. There's a list of passages in there actually that, that draws you to places where we see examples and um, manifestations of, of the glory of God appearing. And so I think this is a good, uh, a good theory to look at because, number one, it fits. It, it fits the selective appearance. Uh, it fits the ability to move and guide people. And uh, it can exist for as long as needed to fulfill its purpose. In addition to that, given the miraculous nature of, of the Christmas story, I, I don't think it's out of question that God could choose to use such a sign as this to signal the advent of his son. There's a whole lot of other miraculous things that happen throughout the Christmas story, so there's no reason to believe that the Shekinah glory of God wouldn't show up during it as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we understand, uh, you know, that this Shekinah glory is our second million-dollar word, yep. right, of the day. Yeah, big words. Um, so another question uh, similar to this wise men topic, again, is what's the significance of the gifts that mm-hmm. the wise men brought to Jesus? Okay, the gifts, Yeah. So, as we know, kind of continuing the story of the wise men. So after they follow the star, they, they find Jesus and his mother Mary, and they bring gifts. Remember what the gifts were? We can call them up first one. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Murray? Who's Murray? No, that's right. Just kidding. Myrrh. Yeah. Myrrh. Um, yeah, those are the three gifts that they brought. Now, we don't actually know. Now, just, you know little note. We don't actually know how many wise men there were. Sometimes we think three wise men because three gifts, and they each brought one vessel of gold and one thing of frankincense, one thing of myrrh. We actually don't know that. Uh, Eastern tradition, there was 12 wise men. Uh, Western tradition, there was three. And here's another, here's a bonus question for you. Did you know that in Western tradition, they've actually given names to these three wise men? So I, I had forgotten this until I researched it this week. Does anybody remember, anybody know the names of the wise men? Sorry? Okay, Belshazzar, yeah, Belshazzar, or, or Balthazar, yeah, yeah, that's right. Malk, wow, we're doing good. Malkor, yeah. One more? Gasp, wow. 
This is impressive. You guys should come up here and answer questions. Yeah, well, I think we're done this for is good. today. I no. didn't know if anyone would get that. I didn't know. That's I was, good. thought there was a chance. But yeah, so, yeah, so Gaspar, Melkor, and, and uh, Balsar. Traditionally, we don't know. Like, I'm not saying that was their names and there's only three, but you know, just Western tradition has done that. So good, well done. If I had prizes, I would definitely hand those out. <laughs> I would, I would. Um, but we don't know how many there were. We know there was probably a kind of an entourage that went, probably a number of them plus an entourage that went along. They'd have their servants with them to help them on the trip. It was, it was a long trip. You need a lot of supplies to go with you. Um, so we don't know how many, but we do know they brought these three gifts. And so it may have been multiple amounts of these, of these gifts as well. And the purpose was to pay tribute. Uh, was they, were, they knew they were, they were looking for a king. They knew that the end of their destination, if, it, if their journey was successful, they were going to be in front of a king, and they were bringing gifts to play, pay honor. They were bringing gifts to, to pay tribute to this king, um, which was very a, a common practice. Um, but not only was it common practice, it showed that they, they, they saw Jesus as a king. They believed he was a king. They didn't fully understand what all that meant. But they believed in the kingship of who he was because they were bringing these gifts to him. When they found him, they, they did. They presented the gifts before him. They, they gave him gold, a, a precious metal, uh, as we're familiar. It's very, very valuable uh, and useful for commerce throughout, throughout history, useful for commerce. They brought frankincense, which is like a white resin or a, kind of a gum from a tree that is very fragrant, used in perfumes quite often, uh, and myrrh which is a spice that also comes from a tree. And, and myrrh would sometimes be used for a few different things, but one thing it would be used for is uh, added to a drink, to wine. It had sort of a stupefying effects to it. You could add it to wine to make it a little stronger. Uh, but it was also used in embalming was another, another use for it. So um, Now, apart from the value and the practical applications of these, these gifts actually hold some symbolic significance as well. And it's, it's looked at as kind of foreshadowing, so these gifts are brought to King Jesus as a baby, kind of foreshadowing um, the future of his life. You know, for example, uh, the gold he was given. Gold is a sign of divinity and kingship. Whenever you read stories of kings, kings got gold quite often. So it, just, it kind of is a symbol of kingship and divinity. But at the same time, if you keep reading just a couple more verses past um, where we are right now in Matthew chapter 2, an angel is going to appear to, Matthew, to, uh, to Joseph and be like, you need to flee to Egypt. And so they immediately need to pack up and go to Egypt and live for a period of time. So that gold would come in pretty handy to fund a trip to Egypt and provide for them while they were fleeing um, the death threats of King Herod. Uh, frankincense uh, was symbolic of, uh, of, of like holiness and in righteousness is, is what it's sort of symbolic of. And Frankincense is very commonly used in worship. Uh, whenever you have sort of fragrant things burning, like an incense almost burning in worship, frankincense would be one of the things that, that would be used. And so it had this aspect of, of worship to signify holiness and, and righteousness. Um, and then myrrh symbolized uh, suffering and affliction is what it symbolized. Remember, it was used, as, used in the process of embalming. And so it's thought to kind of foreshadow or signify that Jesus would suffer upon the cross when he paid for our sins. And so symbolically in these gifts, we see that Jesus is declared as the divine king who is holy and righteous and will ultimately suffer for our sake, to die for our signs. Mm -hmm. So wow. even, at, even at the birth of Jesus, there's, there's a lot of looking forward to his kind of purpose in, in ministry. So now we have no evidence that the wise men chose these gifts for this reason. 
but we do know that God knew. And uh, if God had a plan since Genesis 3 to bring all this to fruition, no reason to believe he couldn't orchestrate these events as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. That's great. Well, we have had maybe one or two other questions yeah. come in, but I think for time, we'll move on for, for today's. Sure. Uh, oh, I will say, now. though, I know. I'll show you later. Okay. Um, I will say, continue to send in your questions, right? We've got uh, another week of this next week. Yeah. Will they fit in the next week, you think? Well, we'll see. Okay, good. I think. Yeah, we'll get there. Awesome. So uh, we'll jump into our last question for today. Um, and this is definitely related to the Christmas story, and we're getting a little more theological now. Yeah. Um, so the question is, why did Mary have to be a virgin? Right? It's question. kind of so much easier to understand, to believe the story, if... Uh, we kind of forget that part. Just get rid of that part. Right. Yeah. Some people gloss over that part. Yeah. Right. Because that's, that's hard to, mm-hmm. to comprehend and get our head around. Yeah, this is a really important question. Uh, so that's a major part of the story we're familiar with. We sing it in our Christmas carols. We read it in, um, in both Matthew and Luke. We read about this. Uh, and before I answer the question, I just want to say this. I find that some Christians get a little too comfortable with this idea. You know, if you grew up in church and, and you've gone to Sunday school since you were you know, a little one, you've been hearing this story your whole life. And, and you get to the part where, yeah, yeah, Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin. You're like, sure, that, that's just what happened. And you just kind of, kind of accept that. But I want to challenge you. Let's, let's never pretend that that's natural, right? Let's never pretend that that is a common thing or that's easy for our brains to actually accept, because it's not. It's not natural. It's not common. It should not be easy for us to accept. And, you know, and, and rightfully so. Because it is an amazing miracle that took place. And, and if we get too comfortable with it, we lose the, the, the awesomeness of what's taking place in that moment. But in addition to that, when we talk to people who don't believe and didn't have the same upbringing as us, and we're just like, yeah, no, that's a natural. That just sort of happens. And we, we kind of downplay the significance of this. That's confusing to people. Like, like how, how can you just so easily accept that? Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't accept it. Just, let's, let's just not get too comfortable with this idea because people who don't believe and weren't raised in Sunday school and not do not you know, come to this belief as easily. It's a stumbling block for a lot of people. Uh, and rightfully so because of how amazing of, of the miracle it is. But it is a necessary doctrine of the Christian faith. So, as difficult as it is, as amazing as it is, it is not optional. And I'll explain why. You see, first of all, both Matthew and Luke attest to the chastity of Mary. Uh, and Matthew, to the point of even tying it to Isaiah 7.14, where it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, When Mary heard that from Gabriel, she asked a question that we should all be asking. How is that possible? (laughs) How is this possible? This thing that is to happen to me, how is that possible? We should all be asking that question. And the angel Gabriel gave a reply. And in the reply, we see not only the how, but we actually start to glimpse the why. Why it has to be this way. In Luke chapter 1. Verse 35, after Mary asks how, Gabriel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, in, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So we've got this uh, Mary, uh, mm-hmm. in Mary, we have the conception of Jesus, yep. right? The immaterial, the Spirit. 
Right, so the right. Holy Spirit of God. Hand. Yeah. Yep. And on the other hand, we've got the material, the, the Mary right. combining. Right. So that's what it's saying in verse 35, is that in this moment, the immaterial Spirit of God will be combined with the material, the human, of Mary. Will be combined. And so this, this is what Gabriel's talking about. Not only the how, but, but why. So let's take this a step further. This needs to happen in order to preserve the truth that we in the Gospel of John in particular, that Jesus was fully God and he was fully human at the same time. Not, not 50-50, 100% God, 100% human at the same time. The fullness of God dwelt within, within Jesus at the same time. This is what we refer to, here's our final and third uh, big word for the day. This is what we refer to as the incarnation. The incarnation of God, where the divine is embodied in flesh. Now, John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. It says, in the beginning, the word, so the word referring to Jesus, in the beginning, the word, uh, oh, sorry, was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And you skip down to verse 14 in John 1. It says, the word became flesh, the, the embodiment of flesh, the incarnation, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So, it's important for us to, to hold, and this is another core belief of the Christian faith, it's important for us to hold to the incarnation of Jesus. But as I'm going to further explain, you cannot have the incarnation without the Immaculate Conception. So here, here's what I mean by that. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, and that's only possible through the Immaculate Conception. And the reason that that is so necessary is because without Jesus being born of both spirit and flesh, salvation is not possible. That's the importance of this. The importance of Mary being a virgin is that it has this domino effect where if she wasn't, if this wasn't how it happened, salvation is not possible. I'll further explain that. And here's, here's why. Remember, the very first question we had, the Proto-Evangelium, it had the bad news part of it. The bad news was that the sin curse of Adam has come into the world. And that sin curse of Adam has been passed on to all people at conception, at birth that has taken place. All of us were born with this sin nature. But Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Therefore, Jesus was not born with the same sin nature that we have. But he was fully human because he received that in the purity of his mother Mary. Therefore... That makes Jesus the only one ever who is worthy to represent humanity as the perfect sinless man. He was never born into the sin nature. He never sinned. Therefore, he is the only one who can represent humanity as the perfect sinless man in his humanity. But since God is father of the incarnate son, he's also fully God, therefore fully divine. So he's worthy as a perfect sinless man, but he is also able to be the ultimate sacrifice because he's also fully God. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, so we put that together. Yeah. We've got Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless man who's worthy, mm-hmm. and then we have also have the, he's the only divine man who is able right. to represent humanity before God and satisfy uh, God's wrath upon our sin. Exactly. We read about this in Romans uh, 5.19, where it says this. It says, For just as through the disobedience of one man, being Adam, the many were made sinners, so that's that sin nature that comes through all people because of the sin of Adam, so through the obedience of one man, the sinless nature of Jesus, 
the many can be made righteous. He's the only one who could accomplish that. Now, we focus upon this at Easter. We, we talk about who Jesus was and his, his sinless nature and his sacrifice and that he was worthy and able to do these things. We talk about this at Easter, but it all begins at Christmas. It begins in his birth. It begins in his virgin birth. It's necessary for this to be possible. And, you know, and this is an example of God's gracious work on our behalf, where God took all of the initiative and in all of it. If you look at some of the questions we covered today, we see that God took the initiative in the Proto-Evangelium where, where the minute after sin enters the world, God announces, I have a plan. I'll bring a Savior. And then we fast forward to the opening of the New Testament where God's plan starts to take shape. He's again the one taking the initiative in the Immaculate Conception because Mary wasn't looking to get pregnant. Joseph didn't have anything to do with it. God is taking the initiative in that moment again. It starts with him, and that is the start of the movement towards our salvation, which again, God took the initiative in, in our salvation. Because we also read in Scripture how while we were still sinners, while we were not looking for him, he sought us. And he did the work for us. We weren't seeking him. We didn't earn his salvation. But he sought us out. He initiated it and made it possible within us. And so that when we can rely upon the truth and the glory oh, and, and the power of God for the forgiveness of sins, when we do that, we can receive it and experience that new life with Jesus made possible. Wow. It's such an amazing gift. It's awesome. Well, thank you for leading us through some questions today. Would you just close us in a word of prayer as we close? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just join me in a word of, a word of prayer here. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, uh, we can ask questions, that asking questions and having doubts is, is by no means forbidden, Lord. It's, it's, how you, it's how you work within us. It's how you challenge us. It's, it's how you help us to, to grow by stretching us. And we, we thank you for the opportunity to have these, these dialogues and uh, to ask and to have answers. And ultimately, we thank you for the source of these answers, these answers that come through your word, that come through the scriptures you've given us, through your revelation given to us. And we read in there, Lord, about the beautiful gift of Jesus Christ that we just, uh, Lord, we celebrate and we thank you for here during this Christmas season. And all who he was, all who he is, all that he has promised to be for us in the days ahead, we say thank you and experience the glory of that this Christmas season. Amen.